Hey there, I'm Lucas Fitz. If you know me, you know two things to be true. I love a good pair of denim, and I'm always here for the stories. When I first got into the heritage goods movement and buying intentionally, I looked to American Field as an industry leader in connecting cool brands to cool consumers. There's nothing better than hearing the story behind how a big idea grew into a business. Now, we're bringing it online and inviting you to join in the conversation, whether you're watching or listening along from wherever you call home. I'll be hosting these fireside chats, intimate, personal looks at the inner workings of some of our favorite brands on our AF network. So, sit down, grab a whiskey or coffee or beer, and ride along as we shine the spotlight on real people and real stories. This is AF Fireside. Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com. All right, welcome back to AF Fireside. I'm excited to be here with two fellow New Englanders today, uh, Kyle and Mike Rancourt, the father and son duo behind Rancourt & Co. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Fireside. Great. Thank going, you for having us. Yeah, going well. Thanks for having us, Lucas. Yeah, no problem. I'm excited to talk to you guys. I said, we're, we're practically neighbors, right? Probably 120 to 200 miles between. I guess I, I don't know how many miles, but I love going up to Maine. I, Portland, Maine is going to be like one of the first destinations to hit once, you know, all this pandemic stuff blows over. Uh, get some fries at Duck Fat and hit all the cool little breweries <laughs> down by the water. Yeah. You guys spend a lot of time in town there. I know you're, you're when, a little further When away. the restaurants reopen. Yeah, when the restaurants reopen, that'll be the time to come. Um, yeah, I normally do, and and I don't know if you know this, but we we had a a small shop, a pop up shop in Portland. Um, yeah, all of 2019, and then about half of 2020, and we decided to close it in 2020 because it it was a short term lease that just didn't make sense. There was no foot traffic um, during the pandemic, which uh you know it's understandable yeah but it, you know it was it was smart to 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 get into a pop-up shop in in the short-term lease because if things like that happened we weren't tied to this long-term lease and you know losing money on it so we closed it for now and uh when things turn around we'll probably reopen it again you know in Very 20 cool. next year 2022 right. but yeah we spend a lot of time in portland yeah that's awesome that's that'll be on my list of things i think for, I don't want to blow the secret because I, you know, maybe people don't know Portland, Maine is like the best secret destination, I think, in the world. I don't think, I don't think it's a secret anymore. No, been, no. I think, it, I mean, just based on the the real estate market this past year, it's just, sure. you know absolutely blowing up. So fair, yeah, it's it's the worst kept secret. I would. All say. right. That's how we'll brand it. Cool, guys. Well, for anybody that may not be familiar with the brand yet, how would you summarize Rancourt & Co. In, in a sentence or two? You want to take this, Dad? Yeah, sure. In a sentence or two. I mean, that's a hard one for me in that sentence or two, but I'll give it a shot. Um, and, you know, when I, when I think of a brand, I think, you know, in bigger terms as to what it means to uh, a community. So, you know, I always look at, and I always think this through in regards to, you know, what we stand for here in the Lewiston area and then what we stand for in the marketplace. Uh, and then as an employer, you know, the hiring with the, with the workforce we have from, you know, averages between 35 and 40 people are here all the time working full time. Uh, and then the love the consumers have for us and, you know, what we do.
do and the products we make. And, and so that's how I describe, you know, our brand, you know, and then there's, there's obviously the, the power behind it is, you know, people like Kyle and, you know, people on the staff and, um, you know, people on our factory floor that spend days on end learning how to make great shoes. So that's how I define our brand. Very cool. So I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I prepared, I prepared a one sentence. Oh, all right. I like that. Let's description hear for you. Um, crafting high quality footwear in Maine with a commitment to tradition and community, which I think gets at what my dad was describing. Definitely. Yeah, we got, we got the old school and the new school sentence. That's good. Yeah. I like that. That's, that's the abbreviated version. The, uh, <laughs> Let's keep this really short version, which is great. <laughs> I love it. So let's let's dive into kind of the history and heritage of the brand and starting with the location. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about New England and how great Maine is. How has living and growing up in, you know, uh, New England and, and Maine both influenced your personal identities and your work ethics and then also the identity of the brand? I, I think the identity the identity of the brand and the company has been greatly affected by um, our community and the fact that we're based in Maine. Uh, Maine's an interesting place. It's, um, you know, it's often lumped in with like New England prep slash coastal elite. Um, And I think there are parts of Maine that are like that, but uh, the reality is most of Maine is working class. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's uh, vast swaths of farmland, um, you know, in northern Maine. There's the coastal fishermen, you know, the hardworking lobstermen and fishermen that Maine is known for, uh, very blue collar. And then uh, there are the mill towns like Lewiston, where where we are, you know, these, these towns that popped up on major rivers. We're on the Androscoggin River, um, you know, similar to like Fall River in Massachusetts. So exactly what you'd picture in new england mill town big brick buildings that are now empty you, you used to be textile mills mm-hmm. um so our identity is is you know greatly informed by that working class blue collar mentality so you know we're we don't consider ourselves fancy or luxury or sophisticated overly sophisticated um you know we make a great high quality product with great materials at uh, a price that I think most, most people can afford people who, who value uh, quality over quantity can, can and and do afford. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something that, uh, you know, when you think about the marketing of a, of a heritage good, right. A rugged, good, rugged style, it's, it's really kind of shifted to the Yosemites and the, the Rocky Mountains and that corner of the country. But I've always felt that the heritage movement has such a home just with the intrinsic New England ethics, right? I always think about, about the soil here, right? And how rocky and how tough it is. And that's like, we, we want things that are built for that. Um, Mike, h- how, how would you say that, you know, the, the product is influenced by the place yeah um and it's an interesting question because uh, you know it dates back you know hundreds of years now right so when you think of think of the functionality of uh, a traditional moccasin or hand sewn you know it was uh native americans that were using and, and creating their own footwear their own moccasin footwear uh now as a fashion statement i say that as a joke 
Um, it was functional. And, you know, that, that, that look in that functionality has carried over from every brand, including us, you know, yes. I mean, L.L. Bean and, and maybe Eastland turned that into a fashion statement with, you know, certain ways that they were marketing it from a, even the way they were tying the lace, you know, it just became less functional and more of a fashion statement. But from my dad's perspective and from my perspective and Kyle's now is that, you know, our shoes and our footwear are still functional footwear. They're rugged, they're heavy. Um, you know, Kyle's talking about blue collar workers. I mean, if you, you walk in our factory and you see the, the men and women who are creating these products, I mean, they're here to create these rugged, beautiful, you know, we see the beauty in it just because of the craftsmanship that goes in it. Um, and that's a rare thing. You know, you just don't find that kind of craftsmanship and that willingness to work with your hands and create this product um, around the country or around the world. I mean, it's uniquely American, but also uniquely New England. Yeah, well, well said. I love that. All right, you guys want to play a little game real quick? We're going to do a quiz. Okay. So, so Kyle... I know you're, you're the new guy, right? You have been around since the beginning. Can you give me a synopsis of the history of the brand? And Mike, you're going to fact check. You're going to let us know if he did a good job. <laughs> a history of the brand or of, of our family? Yeah, so, so the family history. brand, right? You guys have had a lot of different iterations over time. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think I know this pretty well. So, uh, so I, should be, I should be spot on. Good. Um. So, so my grandfather emigrated to Maine from, from Quebec when he was young. And in his, I think in his 20s, he got a job uh, as a hand sewer in a moccasin shop. So they were, and by moccasins, I mean, you know, like a traditional moccasin with a soft leather sole. Mm-hmm. Um he he worked there for for some amount of time i'm not exactly sure that could have you know maybe 10 15 years and uh, became the foreman so the manager of the shop and uh the owner was looking to retire and uh, he offered to sell the business to my grandfather so he bought it and took over the moccasin making part of the business um Again, some some uh, undefined number of years later, my my dad came along, you know, after a a short career in the restaurant business in in his twenties, and decided to join his father in the shoe business, and they started uh, a new company called Down East Footwear, um, with with the goal and the aim of growing from just making moccasins to, you know, making shoes like leather soles, rubber soles. So, uh, so most of the same things we're known for today, particularly loafers, but also, you know, boat shoes and camp mocks and, and things like that. Um, so that's how those two got together. And uh, there's, there's a lot of details I'll need to skip over because it could be a really long story, but essentially my grandfather retired. Um, my dad sold his shares in that business. They started together, started a new company with my mom um, in the early nineties 
which was built and then sold to Allen Edmonds. And my dad worked for Allen Edmonds for uh, about 12 years, 13 years. And when they announced plans to close the factory they had bought from my parents uh, in Maine, we decided to buy it back from them and start Rancourt and Company. And that was in 2009. And then that brings us to today. Very cool. How do you do, Mike? Yeah, almost perfect. <laughs> what did I get wrong? The only thing I want to add, though, is my father, who worked with his father in the lumber business, uh, they were lumberjacks. Um, when he decided to leave that industry, he did go work for a factory in, a, in, in his 20s as well. But it was like a big brand. It was like Bostonian. There was a couple of big manufacturers here in Maine. There were a number of them, but in Lewis and Auburn, there was a couple of big ones. And he went to work there and learned how to hand sew. And then he worked for them for probably around 10, 12 years. And then went and joined this small moccasin maker in uh, Lewiston. And oh, that's, okay. when, that's when it all started, when he bought it from the yeah. gentleman that owned it. But he was, a, he was a hand sewer, which, you know. Yeah, he was a hand sewer. That that's one thing that differentiates my my dad mike and i from from dave my grandfather is um you know we we never really we've never really been shoemakers i mean we are shoemakers in the sense that we both completely understand the process we've both done parts of the process but my grandfather was like you know, truly a shoemaker, like making shoes day in and day out before he moved up, you know, moved up the ranks. Kyle, and almost perfect from your dad, that doesn't get better than that. I can tell you from personal <laughs> experience, it doesn't get better. So well, I've had so a lot Mike, of practice. Yeah, for sure. Mike, I got to ask, you know, yeah. the goal of, you know, having your brand acquired or, or selling your brand is a, is a dream for a lot of entrepreneurs out there. And you've navigated a lot more acquisitions than anyone else. I think I've ever met. <laughs> yeah. What's, I want to take your temperature on that. What's, what's that been like for you? Do you like it? Do you hate it? Um, well, I'm going to separate it. So my dad and I never had a brand and then my wife and I never did. We had, we had factories mm -hmm. and, and we were seeing, you know, just because of the commitment we made to the kind of product that we were going to produce, we had, you know, a number of big brands who wanted to buy our factory. And so um, I'll say this, the first one my dad and I sold to, uh, I'm not going to mention a name right now. Yeah, uh, sure. it, was a, it was a larger company. And I quickly learned, you know, with my dad, we had around at the end before we sold it, we probably had around 50 people and, you know, it was all hand zones. And, um, but I was really clamoring to learn more about the shoe business. So we sold it to a larger company. Uh, and within two years, I was like, just dreading, you know, going into work, um, because it was really all about mass production. Um, you know, we had two factories, we had a couple hundred people, and I was president of manufacturing and, and uh, it just, the fun was gone, uh, you know, from the product it wasn't about product anymore it was more about people and more about peers and and so that, that was not enjoyable and that's why hence my wife and i started uh main shoe the alan edmund experience was much better you know i really uh i i felt that the owner of alan edmonds was a terrific mentor for me and a, and a person who loved product and quality and told a great story and you could enjoy working there, even though the numbers were meaningful. Uh, he wanted us to really stick to the first thing 
that brought his attention to us and that's making great, great product. And so that, that experience was much better until they sold to an investment group. And then that was a whole nother experience. You know, now you got an equity group coming in and saying, we love what you guys are doing. We want to grow this. We want to be bigger and we're going to sell it. Uh, so do whatever you can to help us get bigger and then we'll sell it. Interesting. So the, the mental journey though, right? When you're, you're releasing this thing that you've worked hard on it, yeah, it, that changes based on the circumstance, I assume. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, I would say emotionally it took a while because I had to disconnect from the fact that my dad and I had this company that we were growing and we, we were, to me, quite honestly, we were struggling. There were a lot of factories at the time. Um, my father was a moccasin maker and not really a businessman. Uh, and I was too young to understand the difference. You know, I was just thinking we can sell a lot of products and make, you know, make lots of shoes and one day we're going to make money. Uh, but wow, you know, there was a lesson to be learned there. So once we sold it, I felt relieved a bit because we just couldn't get to the next level. Uh, with Alan Edmonds, I think, you know, the danger of, and this is a, a, a story so often told is that when you have a customer who dominates your business and, at that point with Allen Edmonds, they were probably around 50, 55% of our business. Uh, you really kind of feel uh, you're placed in a corner when they approach you and say, hey, you know what, we'd like to buy you. And it took about three years for that to happen because, you know, I was saying, you want to buy us, but I'm not willing to sell given what you're offering. And I don't think you bring much to the table other than the fact you're giving us you know, a fair amount of production. Um, but when the transaction took place, I mean, because they asked me to be, you know, play a larger role in the, in the company, I, I was okay with it. I mean, it took three years to come to that decision or conclusion, but I was okay with it. Very cool. Yeah. That's great insight. I mean, I, I, w I don't know a lot of people that are a degree of separation away from someone that's had that accomplishment several times. So that's really cool to get that insight. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, you're um, talking more about the kind of emotional and mental process. I'm curious what it was, what the decision was like for, for both of you to get involved in the family business. Was there always an expectation that you were going to join the ranks regardless of, you know, what chapter of the company it was in at that time? You know, initially, uh, and I, and I brought this up, you know, my dad always wanted me to be involved in his, in his business and his company. And, you know, so I'd go in, when we're my brother and I are both very young, you know, 13, 14, we go in the factory and help and clean. And, you know, it was, it was so fascinating to me. And I, I don't still today, just talking about it. I still have this memory of, you know, the hand sewers, you know, and he had a lot of hand sewers. He had 50 hand sewers at that time, uh, you know, all in unison, you know, pulling, you know, needles through the leather, the two pieces, and then arms up in the air and the smell, you know, the smell of leather and the smell of, you didn't have much gluing. So it wasn't about glue like, like here. It was a smell of leather. And that, that was an emotional thing. You know, I was reading this article the other day about how, you know, these pieces of your life when you're younger, they always come back. And typically in a positive way, whether it's the food or whether it's a drink or, you know, the way your mother's, your grandmother's house smelled. And that factory was that for me. It, it was just, it still is an emotional thing when I, when I smell that leather and I walk through the factory and think in terms of, you know, 13 years at 13 years old, I was having this feeling that um, this is something special. But as I got into my uh, teenage years, 
uh, I kind of went off the tracks a little bit and not a little bit, a whole lot. And, uh, it happens. And my, yeah. My father, uh, got pretty frustrated with me and, and rightfully so. And, uh, we, I did not go back in the factory for a number of years. Um, you know, only as Kyle mentioned, only we got to that, I got to my point in the twenties and I was like, uh, geez, I, you know, I really need to start thinking about long-term mm-hmm. and my dad was leaving his company. And that's when he said, Hey, maybe we can do this together. And I was like, not hesitant at all. I'm like, yeah, let's do this. Cool. How about you, Kyle? Uh, yeah. Before I do, I just want to provide a little bit of context about one thing he said when he said um, his father had 50 hand sewers in his factory. That's, that's a staggering amount just to, again, put in context, we have uh, six, right? It's six, seven, six and yeah, four outside. We have six, and I'd be surprised if the largest hand sewing operation in the country has more than 20 people. So 50 is, a, I mean, now overseas, you go to Dominican Republic, totally different story. Yeah, um, Vietnam, China, there's going to be hundreds of people. But um, in the United States, 50, that's a, that's a big number. So um, I thought listeners might be interested because we we have you know we have a we've we've had as many as 60 people working in our factory but not just hand sewing you know at most we've had maybe 10 or 12 people hand sewing wow um and and for reference when when was that number in play this was in in the 60s and 70s um definitely 80s okay you know with us with, with us or with him you mean I'm sorry. Uh, when when you had the 50 hand sewers? No, when he was a my, kid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my dad. So that would have been in. Uh, let's see. He bought the factory in '67. Uh, he bought. Yeah, he bought it in '67, and he landed some big contracts. And yeah, I would say early '70s, late '60s, okay. early '70s. Cool. So, Kyle, how about your experience? Yeah, I have a very similar story. I mean, I of course grew up going to the factory on a regular basis. Um, Actually, my grandparents, you know, were retired when I was growing up, so they watched me a lot. And uh, I would go to the factory with my grandfather, you know, and see my dad. And um, I actually have this this composition I made when I was in maybe fourth or fifth grade uh, about what I was going to be when I when I grow up. And and it it talks about being a you know, being a shoemaker, working in the, hmm. in the shoe business, like my dad, it's a, so, um, so yeah, you know, that's sort of been a, a lifelong goal or aim. I think it changed a bit after my dad sold his company to Alan Edmonds and, um, you know, cause it, to be honest, it's not so much that I have a passion for shoemaking. I care more about my, my family and my community and this tradition rather than, you know, going into the, just going into the shoe business wasn't what, what drove, you know, was driving that, that goal. Um, So in college I was on a different path. Um, But when my dad told me he was thinking about buying the factory back and, and starting his own thing and, and developing a brand, especially, you know, something that we had total control over. That's when I got, really interested and excited again and um, made the decision to go into the family business relatively quickly and easily. That was, that was like 2008 for me. Okay. Yeah. 
And then a year, you know, a year and a half later, we started the company. So it right. didn't take very long. <laughs> cool. So now, now that we're 10 plus years into it, what's it, what's the process for, you know, separating the proverbial church and state? How do you, you know, leave work <laughs> at the factory and, you know, what, how do you separate the factory from a family get together or a barbecue? Do you guys have strategies that you yeah. employ there? Well, I think that's been one of the most challenging parts of, of this partnership. Um, and, you know, we've gone, we've, we've gone through some, some difficult stretches, some rough patches, uh, over the years, but right now I think we're in, uh, in a really good place. We seem to be figuring out now being able to navigate the personal versus business relationship better than ever. Um, and, and for us, a big part of that is, is definitely leaving business you know, leaving work at work and then spending time together doing things that we enjoy, like, like hiking, um, cycling, you know, outdoor physical activities together, um, where it's not like we work isn't off limits. Like we, we, you know, almost every time we do these things together, we'll talk about work for a little bit, Mm -hmm. but we also talk about our lives, our relationships, politics, you know, anything that's in, and if work comes up, then work comes up. We don't say, oh, no, no, this isn't the time to talk about this. But right. um, so I think just spending more time together, you know, in, in a developing a personal relationship has been really good for us where there have been stretches where we were only seeing each other and talking to each other at work. And that's when the personal relationship suffered, you know, suffered. So we've had to, to foster the and develop the personal relationship outside of work more. Mike, was there anything that you learned from working with your dad for so long that you've now carried into your relationship professionally with Kyle? Yeah, we're, uh, I think Kyle hit it on the head. I mean, my dad and I were very different in regards to that relationship. For my father, it was 100% work uh, 24-7. I mean, I don't care where we went. Even to this day, you know, he's, uh, he's in his 90s now. He's in the early 90s. And, you know, it doesn't take him but two minutes to say, Tell me how things are going at the factory. You know, <laughs> we should have had him on. We should have had all three uh, generations on. <laughs> he's he's in tough shape right now, so I, probably not. I mean, Lucas, running a business is incredibly demanding. Um, if you get five people, it's still demanding, but uh, you tend to relax a little more when you're in our business, where you get the ebbs and flows of demand. Uh, we have 38. We have, right now we have 35, but we just hired three people this week we're at 38 we'll probably get to 40 and then it all becomes about training and production and and then when i leave um you know at five or six o'clock i mean i get home i don't really share anything with my wife about work kyle may text me or call me you know we're planning some marketing thing uh piece but i I will not get into details with him anymore it's just there's too much. It's overwhelming for both of us. And so now we spend probably more time talking about our lives and, you know, politics and happiness and, you know, setting forth as family as opposed to setting forth as business partners. So then let, let me ask you this. To what extent uh, is, is your idea of success for the brand tied to it being run by someone in your family in the future? Ah, that's a good question. <clears throat> I mean, I certainly would 
you know, and I still think about it. I would love the fact that, you know, Kyle um, would, would own this, you know, would, would take over. And, you know, he's not, like you said, and I think he's, he knows this, he's insightful enough to realize that he's not a manufacturing person, but he's really good at marketing and really good at, um, you know, people relationships and relationships of all types. And so I think that's a critical part of our business as we go forward, because uh, it's not really about just making things. It's about developing what made in America means and the beauty of our product and the community and the beauty, you know, just that the beauty of our workforce and, and what they're creating and how they feel about life and how they feel about working with us. So the success, I mean, if he, I'm not looking to sell Lucas. So it's not like something I would say, okay, two years from now, Kyle, I'm selling him. No, that's not what I'm thinking of, but assuming he would take over and then if he decided to sell it, you know, I mean, that's, that's his right at some point, you know, he, he deserves it. He deserves to make that decision. Cool. So you mentioned the made in America movement and you guys were obviously a big part of that. Uh, obviously it's still really important to you guys. It's still important to a lot of consumers, but Made in America as a consumer movement, uh, you know, do you agree that it's it's a movement that kind of ebbs and flows in ins and outs throughout the time? We've definitely seen those cycles in uh, just even the past 11, 12 years, you yeah. know, since we've been partners in this business. Why do you think that that fades out sometimes? I think it's because of um, societal political mm -hmm. issues. Um, I would say it, it comes back into focus because of societal or political issues. Sure. So 2008, 2009, all the way up until 2012, 2013, the, the country was recovering from, you know, a, a depression, the Great Recession, one of the worst, you know, financial times in our history. And people started to realize, oh boy, you know, American manufacturing is struggling. We need to support people who are making things in this country. We need to make more things in this country. And then, you know, as uh, the economy rebounded and, and, and the media stopped covering that quite as much and, you know, people had a little more money in their bank accounts, their 401ks had rebounded, um, you know, they kind of, they kind of lost sight of it. And so, We've gone through this period for the past three or four years, five years, where uh, it certainly has not been at the forefront of most Americans' minds. But now we're going through this pandemic. And as, as we all know, early on, one of the biggest issues was that uh, we, as, as a country, did not have uh, sufficient access to personal protective equipment because very little of it was made in the United States. And so we couldn't, you know, protect that, that resource. We couldn't, you know, we, we yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't find uh, um, the suppliers for that because they weren't in the United States. They were all overseas and they had other priorities. And so again, now we're starting to see where people are saying, Oh boy, you know, we should be manufacturing things in this country and people are out of work because of this pandemic and, and, you know, what types of companies can employ large numbers of people, manufacturing companies. I'm not saying uh, American manufacturing is the answer to everything, but it, it can be a, a small or sizable piece of this puzzle. And I think 
um, we as as brands, we as um, you know supporters of the Made in America movement need to be better at educating, need to be better at communicating uh, what's going on in our in our industries, what's going on with American manufacturing, and how important it is to to continue to support us um, to keep that at front of mind for the average American. So um, when the time does come that they need to buy a new pair of shoes or, um, you know, a new, you know, a new, a new grill or a new uh, power tool or something, they, they can make an educated decision to buy something that was, that was made in the United States because they're supporting um, lots of people who are employed by the companies that make these things, who, who could be their neighbors, who could be part of their community. Um, yeah. Who, you know, these companies pay taxes in the United States that help support their infrastructure. I mean, there's so many good reasons to, to support American manufacturers. Absolutely. I think there's a, a big, consumer disconnect too between uh made in america means it costs more and that can sometimes be true but there are steps in between that you don't under like it costs more because x y and z and oftentimes that's quality uh, and that's the way it's made and that's the materials that it's made out of and that's that's the stuff that the huge companies don't put the money into marketing obviously Mm -hmm. it doesn't really benefit them how do you teach uh, you know, consumers to be able to understand what quality means in, in relation to Rancor. Can I just talk a little bit about the whole, you know, the complexity of made in America, just a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, And I think, I think it is a, it's a complex story because in, in terms of what it means, you know, we can look at it in a really superficial way and, and feel good about doing something that's made in America, you know, a lot of people were willing to do that at some point without really understanding, you know, what it means. And today I think, you know, with, with the, you know, with the light shining on all of these small businesses, restaurants and, and bars, and we can go on have lost their businesses because of the pandemic. And then all of a sudden people in the community started to realize, you know, those are my friends. You know, those, those are, it's my family, it's my cousins, it's, it's people I know very well. And, and they're being very negatively impacted by the fact that we can't go visit them. You know, I went through this uh, with my dad in the, in the uh, I shouldn't say that, my dad went through it in the 70s. It was the worst of it, you know, where factories that employed three, four or 500 people here in our community were shut down and the jobs were shifted over to, at the time it wasn't, uh, China, it was Korea, uh, and it was South America. And so jobs were leaving by the thousands. And I remember, you know, Kyle mentioned these mills. They were all full at one time, you know, and then all of a sudden they emptied. And how that impacted Lewis and Auburn, you know, in regards to, you know, stores closing, laundromat closing, I can go on restaurants closing. And so the, the, the whole story of Made in America is it's about all of us. It's about our community. It's about our family. It's about continuing a tradition and heritage that, you know, allows us to continue being what America is about, you know, growing and, and growing your family and your 
ability to, you know, buy a house, buy a vehicle, whatever it may be. And, and to me, that's what Made in America is about. It isn't a marketing plan or a scheme. It's, it's about us. It's about, you know, what we need as a society in order to continue enjoying the things that we enjoy, the little things that we enjoy. Funny how those ideas get away from us, huh? Uh, yeah, because it's so about marketing, Lucas, now. Yeah. You know, it's about here's the next greatest thing, you know, and what Kyle tries and does very well. We never talk about here's the next greatest thing. Here's what we do. We're going to bring it to you. We love it. You're going to love it. Keep it because we'll service it after. Uh, but enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's really the beauty behind, you know, a lot of the brands we've talked to in Fireside so, so far and a lot of my favorite Made in America brands. Um, you know, I, I was thinking last night, I, I was reading something about, oh, this is a fashion trend that is in this year. And I thought, man, I, I consider myself like a pretty fashion for, <laughs> I, I, I can get dressed in the morning by myself. And I think that's an accomplishment some days, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on the pulse of what's popular right now. The things, the things that I'm into are, are, I guess, timeless. Right. And a lot of these, yeah. a lot of these brands and yourselves included kind of fit right into that, right into that mold. So yeah. I really love the way that you described that. I think I'm when I'm go back and listen to this again, I'm going to write that down, write it, write it down. It's about the community. It's about us. So to go back to that question um, about quality, right. And, and made in America, oftentimes that translates to quality and that's not what's being marketed by the big companies, but it is what you're marketing. So, you know, in, in playing the game, how do you, how do you communicate to customers the high quality of the product and, and how to look for it? Yeah, this, this is an, this is an important one um, because you know, we get this critique or this, to be honest, it's criticism all the time, um, whether it's in on social media or if a you know customer leaves a feed, feedback on um, by email or on a review that our shoes are too expensive. And, uh, you know, my, my reaction is, and not in a confrontational way, um, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but um, my, my reaction to that and my response to that has always been to explain that this is a different kind of value proposition. It's not that our shoes cost $250 and you could get, you know, the same shoe, what looks like the same shoe. My air quotes aren't going to work on your podcast, so I need to. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> I'll Insert say my, the so-called, yeah, the so-called same shoe at LL Bean for half the price, um, which is is made of inferior materials. It's made in Vietnam. Um, you know, it's going to wear out in uh, a shorter amount of time because of those inferior materials and and most likely inferior workmanship. So yes, your initial investment is is higher. Our shoes are expensive. There's, you know, there's no denying that. For 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 the average American, um, our shoes are expensive. And so the way the way I have to communicate it, and, and the way we look at it is, our shoes, because of the the higher quality of workmanship and materials, will last longer. And and to put that into concrete terms. Let's say if you have a pair of shoes from made in 
China or Vietnam or whatever from inferior materials you wear every, almost every day that, you know, with a rubber sole, leather sole, whatever, the typical lifespan of the going to be about a year, maybe a year and a half to the point where most people will probably just throw them away. So our shoes should be two years, maybe two and a half years. So roughly double until they're in need of repair, at which time you could send them back to us. And for $75, we fix the shoes up. We put new soles on them. We clean the uppers, replace laces, all that, send them back to you. And it's like you have a brand new pair of shoes that are broken in and molded to your feet that you paid $75 for. So after doing that, and then if, if you have to go and buy another pair of shoes from the inferior brand for another $125 or 150 bucks, we're already even at that point, right? You have already invested the same amount of money in our shoes that you spent in buying a new pair of shoes. So once you go another couple of years and you have your shoes recrafted again, which people do sometimes, a do, you know, maybe five, six, seven, half a dozen times um, over the life of the shoes, you're saving money at that point. The shoes become more valuable than the pair that you throw away every year to, to 18 months and, and buy a new pair. So to me, that's what quality for us means. And, and that's a concrete value proposition for people. Most of the time, if you just say, oh, our shoes are high quality, people are like, well, what does that mean? Why, why should I spend $250 for them? Well, because they last longer and we service them. And we repair them for a fraction of what it costs to buy a new pair of shoes from us or anybody, right? So, right. so that's where the true value comes in. And, you know, I, I want to say for, for folks that are listening that maybe are just getting into, you know, higher quality goods or, you know, taking, taking a new consumer stance. I don't want to speak for your whole collection, but for the quality of, of goods that you guys put out. And I've, I don't own Rancourt shoes at this point, but I, I have held them before. I've checked them out before. Um, <laughs> you have some extremely affordable options for the quality of goods that you put out. Thank you. I agree so with you. <laughs> I would say Rancor is a, is a good place to start. Um, you know, if you're yeah. looking for a good accessible uh, entrance into, you know, whether it be heritage goods or well-made or yeah. made in America, et cetera, et cetera, you name it. Um, and, and you know, the, you had some prices the, that surprised me to be honest right. with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. For sure. I, I appreciate you saying that because I, I think it's true. And, you know, I, the only reason I didn't say it is because um, I, you know, at times I am concerned about uh, coming across as out of touch with what an average person can afford. But sure. I agree. I mean, for the level of quality compared to what's out there in the marketplace, we are on the lower end of, of in the of price of pricing, retail pricing. And mm -hmm. the reason is um, there's a number of reasons, but one, our business these days is primarily direct to consumer. So you're not paying a markup for wholesale, right? So, right. you know, I'm sure people understand that by now that when you sell something wholesale, um, there's an additional percentage tacked on by the retailer. Um, and then the other, the other big piece of it is that that's just part of our philosophy. That's part of our DNA that we want. I, I honestly, for the entire time I've been in this business, it has been important to me to sell our products at a fair price. I, mm -hmm. I couldn't sleep at night if I felt like I was price gouging, if I was making right. some, you know, insane margin on our products that many brands do. Um, 
that's that's just not who we are. I, I, I want to add some context, some additional context to that. I think, you know, value is really difficult to put your arms around. Um, you know, so we have some consumers just, just absolutely love uh, our shoes and the value isn't so much, well, what am I going to get in return? They just love wearing our product and, you know, that's key for them. But mm -hmm. I look at the relationship that we develop with, with customers. And, you know, if you look at the team, you know, that in the back office, the back office team, um, you've never seen the kind of devotion, you know, that we have from, you know, this team behind us that's, that's dealing with uh, the consumers on a daily basis, but not just the consumers from a selling standpoint, also processing the, the recrafts that are coming back our way, uh, you know, the, the commentary they'll make or, or add to the question in regards to color or fit or size or, and so it isn't just the sale, you know, they, they are truly interested in the person who was calling. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I'm in the office most of the time on the factory floor, but I'm in the office a couple hours sitting and doing, you know, email work and, you know, and, you know, one of our staff, Dave, uh, he, every day he has a consumer that he's communicating with on an email and, you know, he'll ask me questions about uh, leather, about fit, about size, about, it could be about anything, you know, sometimes even how should I wear this? And uh, so think about the average consumer who's walking into a retailer and the shoes are made in more than likely China. Who are they going to talk to? <laughs> what are they going to ask? Right. <laughs> the, the clerk may say, you know, the salesperson may say, uh, yeah, well, I can get you a nine and a half instead of a nine. But are they going to are they going to be able to talk intelligently with knowledge about the leather and about the sole and about the last and about the service that follows? And and so, again, value is kind of intangible. But I look at it and say, why would I do it any different? You know, if I'm developing a relationship because I'm paying $300 for a pair of shoes, you know, I want to know the people I'm working with, you know, the people who are making it, the people I can talk to are genuine, authentic, are, you know, are going to, when they make a mistake, admit they make a mistake, but in general, make things right. I was going to say, I, kn I knew it was coming because I, I realized I left out that part that um, part of the value of the shoes is access to our knowledge and our heritage right. in the business and you know which i think is what my dad was describing um that you know we have decades generations of knowledge of shoe shoe making and materials and when you buy a pair of shoes from us you get access to that so you can ask any question and and get an expert answer or opinion absolutely all, all ties back to community huh yeah it all does love it that that's your stance all right well we're running running to the to the bottom of the timer here i got one last one last question for you it's kind of a big one though um can you spell out the benefits and and the downsides to running a family business <laughs> that is a big one <laughs> the the uh, wikipedia version then <laughs> yeah the wikipedia version um I mean, definitely the benefits um, are the fact that we have family that we rely on and trust and care about. 
Um, and I can't say that about all businesses, but certainly in this business. Um, and we have this philosophy, you know, Kyle's philosophy um, is something that's been developed in our family over decades. You know, he, he's certainly refined it, but, you know, through all my years of manufacturing and, and this is four decades for me, um, it's pretty easy to become cynical about, you know, shoemaking and brands and, but through it all, I mean, the one thing that I always felt, and you know, I, I used to love saying this, we, we, between my father, myself, and, and Kyle, we've outfitted many, many consumers over the last four decades. And we never lost sight of that, that we were making shoes for people. And we want, and I feel strongly that it's better done with family around me than not having family around me. So the downfalls. <laughs> I think, you know, Kyle, you know, one thing my wife and did, did, we did really early on when we, when we got in business is, you know, we, we would not get into any testy, difficult discussions about what was happening in the factory or in business that would create tension with us in the household around the kids, whatever it may be. It was stressful enough, you know, with all that weight of driving and developing a business and growing and uh, that we would just not get into it. And I think, you know, Kyle and I have had our moments where it became too much about business. And I lost sight of that. You know, I lost sight of it where, you know, every day, you know, it was stressful. And then we, then the pandemic comes and talk about adding more stress and, and demands and pressure on us. Uh, and I really lost sight of what this was all about, you know, what we were trying to do. Um, and so the downfall is, is is a caution you know it's a cautionary tale don't let the business run your lives to the point where you have no personal life or you don't care about each other other anymore and so that would be my my tale about being in business <laughs> in a family it, business that's funny because that that sentiment has uh, been echoed by a couple of folks that we've talked to and had on the podcast. Yeah. The, the text can wait, the email can wait. And I really love the, the angle that you guys have where, yeah, we go hiking, we go biking together. We make sure the, yeah. to yeah. really nurture that side of the relationship as well. Kyle, any, any thoughts on upsides and downsides? Yeah, absolutely. So one, you know, one thing I want to note is that working with family is difficult and, um, it just, it can be very challenging. And so we've had other family members work, um, not immediate, you know, my, my mom of course has been part of the business over the years. And then my partner, Ashley is, is currently part of Rancourt and company. Um, and she's been with us for five years now. And, and that's been a positive, um, a positive relationship, business and personal, uh, but we've had other family members work for us and it's, you know, it's been difficult um, because, you know, it's, it, it can be challenging at times to not let personal relationships interfere with business. So, if so it, and specifically if somebody's not performing um, that, that can really become difficult on your personal relationships. So I've, sure. I've found in general, I like to steer clear of adding more family members to the mix, but the, the the number one positive that I can glean from this is working with somebody or 
more than one person in your family who you can trust immediately. You don't need mm-hmm. to develop that. You know, we, we've had people work for us over the years who, you know, we thought we could trust and turns out we couldn't. We've had, you know, we have people with us right now who we've developed trust in over the years. Um, but again, it took years to develop that trust to the point where, you know, we trust them with certain things, financial things, sure. managerial responsibilities. But with my dad, with my mom, with Ashley, I have somebody I work with who I can depend on that I can trust immediately because we're family, we love each other, and uh, we know that they're doing the right thing. They're doing what's right for the business because they care about me personally. They care about the family personally. The downside is, you know, virtually the same thing that my dad said, that um, when you start to let the business relationship dominate the relationship, it hurts the personal side. And, and that's never, that's never a good thing. Um, so, you know, we've, we've had to, to work hard at this and we are doing the work and, and it's been really beneficial for us. So I'd recommend anyone in a family business to, you know, do that work to, to foster your personal relationship with your family members that you work with. Don't let it become just about the business. For sure. Well, I got to say that that's great advice. Uh, you know, I think for a whole multitude of, of reasons, and I think it's really brave of you guys to go out and say that. So I appreciate that honest insight there. Um, obviously wish you guys all the best and kind of navigating out of this COVID time and back into the, the regular market. What's the yeah. best, what's the best way for consumers to learn more and follow along? Uh, and and actually we have a new, we have a brand new website. Uh, we launched oh, cool. about two weeks ago and cool. new, new platform. So it's, we have, it's given us the ability to do more things that we wanted to do. So, um, there's more to come on that front. And then also, uh, Instagram, we're at Rancourt Co on Instagram. We have daily updates. Uh, videos from, you know, like shoemaking videos, product photos. I mean, new products, everything's on there as well. So either one of those. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Mike, Kyle, appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Uh, Great to be part of it. Yeah, for sure. Thank you guys. And next time that I'm up in the area, I'm going to be knocking on the factory door. Sound good? Great. That's good. All right, guys. Thanks again. Thank you. I'm Lucas Fitz and this is AF Fireside. To learn more about all the brands featured on the podcast, check out fireside.shopaf.co. And don't forget to subscribe to us on your streaming platform of choice. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com.